0: The following is a message by Dr. R. Scott Clark of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus, your Son, whom you sent for us, the Holy Spirit helping us. We pray this morning that as we gather, you will draw near to us and that we will know that we have been before the face of the living God and that each one of us will be drawn nearer to you, conformed more and more to the image of Christ and by your grace, we may this day put to death a little bit more that old man. Hear us, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This semester, the faculty is leading a series of devotions in and uh, through God's songbook for the church, the Psalter, at least part of the songbook. And this morning, we're looking at Psalm 100, Just having sung it, we'll read it nonetheless. God's word says, Make a joyful noise, or shout, perhaps, to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. And we are his. We are his people. And the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he write this word on our hearts. And may he give us true faith. Friends, uh, this, uh, the setting of this psalm, the original setting, is, is not entirely clear. The superscription is, is somewhat helpful. It's a, a psalm of thanksgiving, or perhaps, more precisely, a psalm of confession. And I see here uh, basically three sets of imperatives. Uh, to call, to confess, and to come. We could... Uh, say, to shout and to know and to come, but it doesn't have the same alliteration. Maybe you'll remember those three Cs, to call, confess, and come. And some scholars do translate that superscription in terms of confession, uh, out of which flows or connected to which is uh, thanksgiving. The original setting, as I said, is not entirely clear, but it seems to be a setting of public worship. We don't know exactly the date of this, of this psalm, of course, but the setting does seem to be something to do with public worship, and some scholars have even connected this uh, and seen this in terms of a sort of public uh, liturgy, a liturgy of public worship. And it's part of a, a series of psalms uh, rejoicing in the goodness And and grace of God, and some trace it back to Psalm 91, uh, and some back to Psalm 93, but there is a theme that develops in this portion of the Psalter, rejoicing in God, and and this, it sort of comes to a climax here in this very familiar psalm, often used in Reformed churches, has been used in Reformed churches for hundreds of years as, as the call to worship. And so we'll look then at these three sets of imperatives. Now, you'll notice that there are, are more imperatives than just three in the first uh, verse here. Right? Shout is one way of translating uh, the first imperative. Shout to Yahweh is the, is the name of the Lord here. So uh, we come gathered together as the covenant people, as Dr. Bergsma used to teach us and still does, the Christ-confessing covenant community. I've always liked that way of considering the visible assembly of the people of God, whether before the Incarnation or after the Incarnation. There's always been just one assembly of God's people in different times and in different places. That's part of what we mean when we talk about the Holy Catholic Church. They confessed, believed the same faith. They worshiped the same God before the incarnation as we worship today, the triune God. They worshiped the triune God in the spirit through the mediation of the Son and adoring the Father. They did so through types and shadows. and You surely see those types and shadows in the altar. But nevertheless, it was the same faith The same God, same Savior, same Father, same Holy Spirit in whom and before whom they were gathered as the covenant assembly as we are gathered here this morning. And God calls us to call upon him, to shout, to be exultant, to be exuberant, to be vigorous. There's nothing about biblical worship that should be stultifying or dull. There's no tension in Scripture between enthusiasm in the, sense in, which it's, in the sense in which I'm thinking of it here, not in the technical sense of people whose religious devotion causes them to go out of their minds. That's the, the way that uh, sociologists of religion sometimes use the word enthusiasm. I'm thinking of Knox's Seminal work on enthusiasm. I'm not using it in that sense. But in the sense of reverent, joyful, exuberant, ebullient approach to God. And it begins then with shouting. With a recognition, a forceful recognition that rises up from within God's people. A shout of confession... Of the, of the truth. What's interesting here is the way that the, the subjective or the personal is grounded in the psalm in the objective. In the modern period, one of the great moves in Christian theology, or I should say nominally Christian theology, or even in sub-Christian theology, has been to ground or redefine the faith Away from the objective saving acts and words of God in history and to our personal experience of the divine. To say, in effect, however you experience that which is holy other, that is Christianity. The, The Word of God doesn't know anything about that. The faith of God's people all throughout the history of redemption is always grounded in what God has said and in what God has done, whether in creation or in redemption. The exodus out of Egypt was not merely a subjective experience which people either imagined or experienced figuratively or metaphorically. They went through the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, on dry ground. It was a real place. There were real armies of a real pharaoh bearing down on them and a real God reached into history and delivered his people against all apparent odds, most improbably, and said, come, serve me. I have made you my adopted son. Israel it is this God this Elohim who said in the who in the beginning said let there be and there was that Elohim is Yahweh and that Yahweh who delivered us out of Egypt us out of Egypt Paul says in first Corinthians 10 not just them but us out of Egypt through dry ground through the water on dry ground that god is yahweh shout to yahweh all the earth you see the universalism here very early in the psalm it's god's covenant people here right this language is in the context of a national covenant with national israel but there's a an implied anticipation of a time when it wouldn't just be national israel it wouldn't just be those who were literally Abraham's sons but it would be all of us who are Abraham's sons by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone in the seed Jesus Abraham's promised one looking already the psalm is looking to that time when all just like Isaiah does looking to that time when all the nations would gather before the face of Of that Yahweh who delivered his people, his remnant band out of Egypt and into his presence. Come, right, or serve. There's the next imperative. Shout, serve, or worship Yahweh with gladness, with joy, knowing who he is, Yahweh, the covenant God the God who said, I will be your God and God to your children forever in an unbreakable covenant promise that is as sure as God is reliable, as Yahweh is faithful to his promise, serve him, worship him, come into his presence, shout. And so these these early imperatives here, shout, worship, come, and that verb to come will come back at the end here, Come where? Come into his presence. Come literally before his face. When God calls us to come, when he bids us come to gather as his covenant people, we don't come principally to achieve a certain state of ecstasy. I know that's what people think when they say the word worship today. How many times have you heard people say, we really worshipped? And I've determined over the years, just by listening to the way that that's used, And analyzing the, the use of that phrase in context, what it means is we had the desired ecstatic experience. That's not the biblical conception of worship at all. The biblical conception of worship does not begin with your religious experience. It begins with the God who delivered us out of Egypt. The God who spoke into nothing and made all that is, come and worship. Come with joy. Come with thankfulness. But the object of worship and the object of the exercise is not your experience, it's the God who is. Your experience, whatever that may be, and it may vary from person to person, place to place, time to time. That's purely secondary. Your experience, that's not for me to judge or for anyone else to judge. That's for God to determine. But we can't know what God intends because it's in his word. The question is not, what did I experience you know, where did, where, where did it come out on the ecstasy meter? Well, I had like a 70 today, I think. Well I was a 42, the praise band was a little off today. No, the the measure here is coming, into the, coming before the face of the God who spoke into nothing and the God who delivered us out of Egypt. When we gather in worship, we come before the face of God. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, may it be that people fall down and worship and recognize that God is so in your midst that they're overwhelmed with the the fact, not of the subjective experience of the noumenal, but the fact, the reality of the presence of God the same God who thundered at Sinai, meets with us when we gather before his face. That God and no other. And we come before him with with singing because what else is there to do when you come before the face of God but, but to rejoice, but to enter into doxology? Because at that point, words simply no longer really work at least not in that sense not in the prosaic sense we simply rejoice in what is the second uh, verb and the central verb in this psalm is to know and again i think quite possibly as some scholars have suggested the the sense here isn't again uh, purely subjective and it's, it was interesting in, in doing a little work on this i noticed that charles augustus briggs reduces here he recognizes this is the he's right this is the central portion of this psalm it I think it's a chiasm the first you've got the first set of verbs which I've summarized with shout or call and then you have to know or confess but usually translated to know that's the central part of the chiasm and then you have the a prime at the end the entering verb again but this knowing here is not what Briggs says, the subjective experience of the individual in the transcendent. It's not Schleiermacher. It's not Briggs. It's not 19th century liberalism. It's not 20th century subjectivism or 21st century subjectivism. Here, the sense here of to know is probably more like to confess. This is public worship. And the, here's the paradox of the Christian faith. You want that sense Of having been before the presence of God. You don't get it by going there directly. You get it by saying the truth about God. To the the degree that God bestows it upon you. The truth is experience comes and goes. That's the truth of the Christian life. Experience waxes and wanes. Some days... And in some settings, you're just not going to feel it. Well, God's intention is that we, we should come before His face and confess who He is and what He's done for us and who He is to us and how He has revealed Himself to us. That's what He means when He says, and know that Yahweh is Elohim, He is, he is our Creator, He's the God who spoke. And either, and I think more likely given the context, and not we ourselves. He made us and not we ourselves. There's a division of opinion because there's a textual question here, textual critical question. But going by the flow of the psalm, it seems to me more likely that it, despite the modern, I suppose the majority modern opinion, I think better to translate this and, and, and not we ourselves. He made us, and not we ourselves. Most of those who say that, as far as I can tell, that it can't be that, they know that before they ever get to the text. But however, that, however you come out on that, the point here is that we know that Yahweh is Elohim, that He is the Creator, that we are His people. We didn't make ourselves, I think that's the best way, but we are His people, the sheep of His pasture. We know him intimately because he has come and made himself known to us intimately, personally. Do you understand what it means to say that we are the people of God? We often let that language just sort of trip off our tongues as if we all know what that means. Do you understand that there are people in the world of whom that's not true? Most of the world can't say that we are his people. Most of the world, through most of history, has been in darkness and is in darkness now. if you can say in truth that we are his people, what a wonderful grace God has given to you. wonderful cause for rejoicing and praising and thanking god that you can say in truth that he is your god and and you are among those of whom it is said we are his people we are his sheep and he shepherds us and cares for us and you see how the psalm sort of unfolds here in the middle and and begins to tell us and explain more fully why we praise and why we thank and why we sing and why we're rejoicing and it is those of whom it is true, it is, of those, it is those sheep who are to enter his gates with thanksgiving at the end of the psalm and to his courts with praise and to give him thanks and to bless his name. Always in scripture and quickly, God's name Hashem, that's who he is. It's not just a nominal relation. It's, it's who he is and who he is to us. To bless Hashem is to bless the God who is and the God who is our God. For Yahweh is good. And his covenant faithfulness, his chesed, endures forever his faithfulness to his promise to be a God to us and to our children, it endures. And that's why he calls us to shout and to confess and come. And when we do, know that it is not simply some remote, transcendent, unknown, and unknowable force, but it is Almighty God, the triune God, who has entered into history in Jesus Christ And made himself known to us and for us. And this morning I say to you, if you've trusted in Jesus, the chief shepherd of the sheep, and the Lamb of God who laid down his life, then you are in that flock of whom it is said, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Let's give thanks. We do give you thanks. O holy and wonderful and gracious shepherd for not leaving us out in the darkness but for coming for us and for rescuing us and for drawing us into that sheepfold. We give you thanks and we do praise you and we do rejoice in you and in your name and in your covenant faithfulness. Boy us up this day In the knowledge of the God who is, and in the confession of these truths. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.